tuned in to Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Gosh, we've had fun with Max Cryer over the years, haven't we? More Max Cryer coming up later this hour. Moments like this really made my heart sing. Father was a soldier at the Battle of Waterloo. The wind blew up his trousers and he didn't know what to do. If you want to ask Max a question, use the email form on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. The schedule's there for the whole weekend, what's coming up. Um, we'll have more of a chat about the World Cup. Don't worry if it, it's, we don't get into like the minutiae of sport and should they be doing a 4-4-2 um, structure for Belgium against France. No. We're talking about the history of the World Cup, the drama, the weirdness about the whole affair throughout its history with Ewan McCabe. He's written a book. It's, the book's old now, but it still reads crackingly. It's called World Cup Baby. He's a New Zealander, and it's one of the best, world, best football books I've ever read. Man, the dude can write. We'll be giving away a copy tomorrow night. Um, or you might have to earn it. We'll see how timing goes, but I'll try and do a, uh, a game of truth or consequences. It'll be truth or cup sequences. World Cup statements, you just ring up and say whether they're true or false. Don't ring now. That'll be tomorrow night. Plenty of stuff coming up on the New Zealand International Film Festival because it's a groovy thing and we can get people. We're talking to the curator of the animation section, which um, it looks really, really fascinating. Get yourself a program. A lot of people come to Auckland especially for it. Yeah, the movies will be going around the country, but uh, we don't make no apology in being all over the New Zealand International Film Festival for now uh, as it kicks off in Auckland on July the 19th. Cinema reviewer and writer for Stuff, James Crute. Up next, he'll walk you through some of the documentaries at said film festival. Very good evening. The Weekend Variety Wireless. At the Movies with James Crute on Radio Live. The New Zealand International Film Festival will eventually go round the country. It's kicking off uh, with the, the big shows, really, in Auckland, and we make no apologies for that. There are plenty of people who live there, and we uh, and take time off work, even, uh, for this sort of affair. James Crute is with us to take us through some of the documentaries. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, look, the, as usual, the documentary lineup is uh, particularly great. Um, you know, it, I, I think it's getting stronger and stronger. I think that's, look, if we talk about Auckland being uh, 50 mm. years old, the festival, I think probably, what, the last 10, 15 years is where documentaries have kind of come into their own. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, there's, there's, some, there's some really great ones uh, this time around. And one I, I really want to start on, which is one I had the opportunity to see last weekend, which is one of those great... A story that you might dimly remember reading about if you were the right age, but you, you'll be shocked by it anyway. It's called Three Identical Strangers. Uh-huh. Um, and it's an American doco 
all about uh, these three young men by the name of Eddie Galland, David Kelman and Robert Shefron. And it all started when one of them was age 19, rocked up to a sort of community college, never been there before, and all these people kept acting like they'd seen him before and were saying, welcome back, brother, welcome back, welcome back. And then somebody mentioned this other name and he goes, no, no, I'm not them. And, and then... Um, one of his, then, they, then he and one of his mates managed to work out who this person they were talking about, and they found out where he lived, which was some distance away. So they drove there, and he got there, and it was like looking in a mirror. He oh, had a doppelganger. Good God! It would have seemed like a uh, an elaborate practical joke to begin with, but that's right. And then uh, you know he worked out that they were born on the same day, uh, and and they both were adopted, and so okay, yeah. And so there was this kind of miracle. And then they uncovered a third person. Oh, good God. Born on the same day, looked exactly the same, had a different name, had had a different life for the last 19 years. And I don't want to give too much away. Okay. But what starts out is this amazing miracle, and they all became media sort of celebrities appearing on the various talk shows of the day in the sort of late 70s, early 80s. then things take a very dark turn. Mm-hmm. Somebody does a bit of digging all about their shared background wow. and discovers that they were actually part of something a little bigger, something okay. that maybe shouldn't have taken place. Oh, yeah, I know how. I'll tell everyone how it ends. They're all the spawn of Dr. Mengele's test tube. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Yes, no, we shan't. It is fascinating. If you liked things like The Imposter, Man on Wire, or Project Nim, those documentaries all about various amazing events or experiments from yeah. uh, or, or, or audacious dupes, if you like, people pretending to be other people, then you'll absolutely love this. Oh, it truly, sounds truly absolutely <laughs> fascinating. Oh, yep. let's talk about Hedy Lamarr. Yes, so what what a figure in, in cinema, one of the most beautiful faces and minds too. Look, I love the fact, uh, I mean, I knew virtually nothing about Hedy Lamarr other than kind of references to her in other movies, things like Little Shop of Horrors. She's mentioned in a lyric there, of course, there's the great um, uh, Mel Brooks, he has a character in Blazing Saddles, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and which is a kind of reference to it. But she was apparently the model for Disney's Snow White oh. and Catwoman. Good God. Exactly. But this documentary is all about, as you say, her mind and the fact that she came up with this, I guess, groundbreaking idea for, for radio frequency and, and a, a radio frequency that could move about if you like, which which was revolutionary for the time and, you know, apparently saved a number of lives in World War Two kind yeah. of idea. Yeah. Um, and I guess was also the, you know, you could trace it as part of the genesis to Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. Mm. Um, and she never received a penny. She never received any acknowledgement from the US government for it. Was this because it was during wartime? Yeah, there was a certain degree of that. Basically, they could r- ride roughshod over any patents and things like that. But yeah, I don't you know, think Alan, Ch- that... Alan Turing didn't get a cent. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but, but uh, an amazing um, physicist of her day, really. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I mean, the other part of this story is, is an amazing thing where one journalist talked to her about 30 years ago and he kept all his notes. 
and oh, sorry, he kept all his audio tapes. Yeah. And so this also uses an amazing amount of audio that's kind of been cleaned up from the old uh, BASF or whatever they were, 60s of the era. Oh, great. And, um, and, and so it adds her voice to the whole thing. So, you know, it just gives that, that extra authenticity um, of what is truly an amazing tale. Um, uh, I think this is akin to finding out that Roger Federer is actually uh, <laughs> a, a tremendous um, fine artist. He's a painter and he's in the Louvre or something, you know, or the, yeah, the Tate yeah. Modern. Yep, yep, I think that's right. I, I think there's a definite similarity there. Um, in terms of documentaries that promote, I don't know, conspiracy theories and outrage, um, there's a couple here. One, The Cleaners, which is um, made by two German directors, and it looks at, uh, I guess, the people that Facebook use to carry out the moderation of the site. So, you know, if somebody puts up a post and then it suddenly disappears, mm. or you find a tweet that says this, you know, content has been removed or something. Mm. These are the, the gnomes of Manila who uh, are the ones tasked with carrying this task out. And they managed to find people that had either left to the company or that were prepared to talk anonymously about their work. I mean, they look at 25,000 images a day, which can include everything from, like, beheadings to torture to child abuse. Oh, God. And they have to make kind of knee-jerk instant decisions about it. And they and got so rid of... They banned me from Facebook for putting up a perfectly lovely picture that happened to have breasts in it. Oh, good God. Yeah, and, and that's, that's another point there as well is... Uh, not only that kind of thing, you know, making arbitrary decisions about nudity and stuff like that, mm. but also uh, working, there's also a conspiracy theory, or quite legitimately in some cases, that they're working on behalf of certain governments and certain territories. Oh, yeah, yeah, or, or political uh, ideologies, even unwittingly, I don't know, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and so, I mean, one of the things they're told to look out for are certain, you know, political ideologies, but it also looks at the toll that doing this kind of work takes on the people there. Mm. It's, you know, it's not the happiest job in the world. You know, in the few, I think they are herding cats and it does more harm than good to censor people. Uh, they become mysterious and, oh, they must be important to the real people that are a worry. Um, and maybe in the future they'll just realise that this is just too much like hard work. I mean, I think there's a vast part of Facebook, Twitter, Google's workforce that are basically contracted rather than employed to um, do this kind of work. Good, There's yeah. some amazing sort of, what is it, congressional hearing or Senate testimony from this kind of three um, flunkies that they've put, you know, to front up to the senators on this, you know, and they just sort of, you know, oh, yes, we take security seriously. We've got this many people in this many countries, and it's quite astonishing, really. yeah. Actually, and disturbing. It's a bit chilling, yeah. I wonder, yeah, exactly. what about one breast? Would that trigger their machine? I'm I wonder if sure. it would. I'm not sure. Okay. But that, that reminds me that, uh, of course, the Daily Star had a daily nipple count in their newspaper. Oh, <laughs> and it was always an odd number. Yeah, okay. Um, um, on something a little lighter, there's a, a terrific Australian documentary called I Used to Be Normal, a boy band fangirl story. And this looks at the lives and musical obsessions of four very different women from different eras almost. So, 
you know, you know how people always complain about, you know, young people these days obsessed with bands like One Direction. Well, this kind of proves that, you know, this has been going on for 50 years. Yeah. Before One Direction, there was the Backstreet Boys and Take That, and before that, there was the Beatles. Yeah, or the, I would say the Monkees and, you, and yep. the Bay City Rollers and the, the Moorsmans. And the Partridge Family. Oh, the Partridge Family. Well, they, they were a boy band. Yeah. But, but yes, you oh, know. No, okay, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so so this uh, just kind of showcases, you know, the, the not really evolution of boy boy band fangirl mania, mm. um, but the, they, the four um, people that uh, the documentarian Jessica Lesky meets are very quirky and, and, and funny. So some of the highlights are like a Backstreet Boys cruise, complete with the original members, mm. and... Um, a Sydney side woman called Dara who believes that for every take that song or, the, or rather there's a take that song for every PowerPoint presentation but like a Gary Larson far side cartoon I guess. I gotcha. Hey there's one I know you might not pick it so I want to point you to it that I, I think you've seen. The Price of Everything. This looks fascinating yeah, to me. It is fascinating. Um, I think it's, I mean, it's a look at the weird and wacky world of contemporary art and I guess not only the people that create it but the people that buy it and the people that help sell it. Yeah. Um, and I really liked how it sort of, you know, gave you that oh, cradle-to-grave sort of approach to it. And, you know, some, some of the people who, I mean, basically it's real estate for some people. And the it, reasoning, it might be a gold toilet. the reasoning behind why something has a market is sometimes, you know, it's not there. Um, well, as the famous quote goes, lots of people know the price of everything and the value of nothing. Yeah, well, that's right. And, and I think, and, and a lot of it is just simply a name. You know, somebody like Jeff Koons or uh, a Jasper Johns sort of thing or a Warhol, that sort of stuff. Freud, what's his name? Yeah. <laughs> All those Lucian Freud, yeah, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Damien Hirst. You know, people just buy Banksy. them. Yeah, well, that's right. And and the other thing is that there we think there's only one of them, and sometimes there's about ten copies. <laughs> that's it's right. The same thing. There were actually about ten Salvador Dalis too, weren't there? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you think, you know, you've got to be very careful because you think you own the only one. But, I mean, some of the people they talk to just know absolutely, you know, this is worth this. And they'll, they'll sell it off when they think they can make a profit on it. Right. Some people can make ridiculous amounts. But I did like that they managed to get access to the artists as well as, nice. uh, the you know, as well as the people who, who buy the stuff. I thought that was interesting. It's actually a documentary made by a guy called Nathaniel Kahn who... Uh, looking back in film festival history, had a very popular one from back in 2003 mm -hmm. called My Architect, which was all about his father, Louis Kahn. Ah, um, which, not, not which his cousin. No, was a big hit at the time. It was one of those ones that, you know, the film festival uh, iterati just loved to go along. Right, not the footballer, Oliver Kahn. <laughs> no, played up. that would be great. I'd love to see his artwork. <laughs> yeah, it would. Okay. And that's just, I mentioned that because it's, people, we're talking films, they may think Khan's spelled C-A-N-N-E-S. No, yeah. this one's K-A-H-N. So yeah. there you go. Hey, um, in the next hour, we've got Max later, uh, coming up very shortly, but in the next hour, we are doing quite a bit on the International Film Festival because there's a lot of fun stuff to talk about, but I don't think there's anything more fun than to talk with the director, long-time director, Bill Goldston. We're going through the controversies, the marches, the bans, the protests, the legal cases. Um, apparently there was one movie 
that it was they only got the um, the go ahead to show it about five minutes before it went to air, and everyone was in the cinema. Wow, yeah, that's pretty cool. Some cracking stories over fifty years of a festival which does push the boundaries. It does, and I think they've done a terrific job of making it as up-to-date as possible. I mean, you look at the program now and the number of films that we've got direct from Cannes, you know, often that are, you know, often we're like the second or third place in the world to play these films, yeah. which is pretty impressive, whereas, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you'd pretty much guarantee you'd have to wait 15 months from a Cannes debut to it appearing at our film festival. This sounds like complaining about something that I, no one ever should, but God, there are a lot of movies, aren't there? <laughs> I mean, are, are there too many? Yeah, well, that's the thing. Um, look, it's hard to know. I, I guess they have an ideal number in mind, but if you look at the number of movies that are out there uh, floating around, I mean, I, you know, I was lucky enough to go to Toronto last year, and I expected far more of what I saw there to turn up here, and I think there's about one. Oh, really? <laughs> it's shocking. Um, it's quite amazing, really. I'm I mean, just thinking of the, um, someone who's not, perhaps, the absolute cinema enthusiast getting a program and just being a little overwhelmed. Yeah, and there is, and it's also it's also hard to navigate between. Okay, what's going to come back? What's not going to come back? Right, right. Um, you know, and and you know, we we will try to let people know where where we know what isn't coming back. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a certain dance you have to make around. Uh, things that we know is come, know are coming back because you don't want to hurt the festival at the same time no. sort of thing. No. But, you know, where we know that, that something, it, it's only life is going to be at the film festival, then we'll definitely let listeners know because, yeah. you know, and there are some things that just scream big screen. Yeah, and on, and on past form you can make an educated guess, maybe. You can. You can also make an educated guess, definitely. James Crute, it's a public service. Thank you very, very much. In the next hour, we're also speaking with Malcolm Turner, who's the curator of the animation uh, enclave of the International Film Festival, which is a marvellous thing. Don't ignore that. Uh, OK, uh, Max Cryer's joining at the leash, and we find out why July is July. Thank you, James. OK, thank you. The Weekend Variety Wireless. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort, words of... Max Cryer, in the house. In the house? As they say in the hood, daddy-o. Oh, am I in the hood, daddy-o? Yeah. <laughs> the hood being Radio Live. Yeah. Oh, and the house. You've got your hood beanie on, too. I have, indeed. Yeah. Looks very becoming, actually, Max. It's people very that cold can't outside. see. I came in from the freezing cold. Oh, did you? To do my appointment with you. you oh, see. you poor thing. Yes. Oh, because we're warm in here. Yes, very warm. All right, Max Cryer answering your questions on words, their origin and meaning. If you want to ask Max something, feel free on the Facebook page or just use the email form, which is on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. And if you want to write stuff down and put it in an envelope, they'll get it here by Christmas, probably. Uh, that is P.O. Box, triple eight zero, Simons Street, Auckland, S-Y-M-O-N-D-S Street, Auckland. That'll get you. All right, Max, our word of the week, Julius Caesar. Really? Well, the word of the week is really July, because that's where we are. Oh, the I see. Is there. Why have we got a month named after a Roman emperor? When, well, when the gentleman was born, uh, the month in which he was born was known as Quintilis. 
no one is exactly confident about when he was born. There's a rather large range possible. Some scholars say 100 BC, others say 200 BC. So it was either 100 BC or 200 BC. And of course, long before Christianity, um, the religion of the time was Jupiter, Jupiter being worshipped, the god who ruled the sky, the earth, the waters, and the underworld. Now, Caesar was described by those who knew him as ambitious, and he decided that his family would benefit most if he could become a priest. So he arranged to be nominated as the high priest of Jupiter religion, and he married Cornelia, a daughter of a very influential politician. Now, the ruler of Rome at that time uh, started to purge his enemies since the, systematically this often happened in Roman history, and he targeted Caesar. And Caesar was known to be ambitious, so he left Rome hastily. But his mother's influence convinced the ruler to lift the sentence. But he was no longer allowed to be a priest, and his wife's fortune was confiscated. Harsh times in, in Rome. There was no other way to provide for the family, so Caesar decided to join the army. And from there, he worked himself up to become dictator of Rome, and acknowledged by the word emperor. He conquered part of Italy, plus France, Belgium, and the Netherlands, and he changed the structure of the Roman government into a dictatorship. Now, as everybody knows, he was assassinated in legendary fashion, but one of his major legacies was to help make the calendar as it is now. Caesar is responsible for the year as we know it, having 365 days, and also for the existence of a leap year every four years. Our contemporary calendar is still much the same system that Caesar instituted 2,000 years ago. When Julius Caesar died, his birth month, he was born in a month called Quintilius, but the authorities changed it in memory of him. They changed it to July, which is where we are now. Slight changes had to be made in the 2,000-year-old calendar system, but the names and the basic structure remain fairly close to how Julius declared. And... Incidentally, in case anyone is sitting at home wondering, there is no proof at all that the word Caesarian birth is so called because Julius was born that way. There are and were known cases through history of a baby being surgically removed from a pregnant mother. It would kill the mother. Indeed, indeed. The primitive methods of surgery at the time, the lack of infection control and dealing with hemorrhaging made it 99.999 unlikely that a living pregnant woman would survive such terrible invasive surgery. So as well as there being no evidence at all that Julia was born that way, there is no account of it. But what is known, wait for this, is that his mother was 20 years old when he was born and she lived until she was 66. Yes, <laughs> it counts it out. Yeah, that counts it out. Yeah, <laughs> It's just that the words sound the same, Caesar and Caesarian. Well, there has to be a connection somewhere along the line, but right. no one knows what it is, and it certainly wasn't that. Caesar could not have been born in a, what we call a caesarean mm. under the medical circumstances of the time it would be 99.999% mm. unlikely that the woman survived and she survived for 60 years yeah the most interesting thing I found out about Caesar was that like a lot of people he was a little bit vain 
Oh, yes, yes. And he went bald quite early. Yes. And he really liked the comb over. The he comb did, forward, the, yes. The full corowettery. Yes. Um, combed it over, and that's why he quite liked wearing the laurel wreath. Yes, because, because it held it in, held place, it in place, and he looked and quite good. With he that. did. I mean, the, the image of him that you have is exactly that. A stern, confident-looking man mm. with a fringe of hair and an elegant circle of, of leaves. Vegetarianly thin, too. Was he, though? Yeah. I think so. Don't how, know if he's How do you know he was vegetarian? I don't, but he was vegetarian there. He looked, oh, I see. you know, that rather, <laughs> you know, like a landscape gardener. Oh, I see. At, so we're not speaking in, here. In their 40s. So we're not speaking research. We're just speaking no, assumption. No, no. It's, it was a way of describing it, Max. Okay. Yeah. But the comb-over's fun. Uh, okay. Let's get to answering your questions. Why does the word dig mean enthusiastic? I dig it, Daddy-o. Yes, well, the... the, the it's funny when you think about it, isn't it? Correspondence gave an example of, I really dig that Jimi Hendrix cat. Now, the word dig is a scholar's nightmare. <laughs> In English, it has a, a completely valid original meaning, dating back 500 years, derived from an equally ancient word, diggin which may have been French or German, but in the early centuries it remained referring to making a hole in the ground, excavating, tilling the soil, and gradually over time other uses crept in. Uh, an archaeologist's examination became a noun, a dig. In the 1700s it began to mean those who studied hard at school or university. This has faded a bit, but it was quite common in those times. To dig meant to investigate and to understand. Uh, in 1789, there was mention in England of, quote, youths who never digged for the rich ore of knowledge, meaning they never studied, they didn't oh, do their homework. Oh. Then in 1828, there was a mention at Harvard in America of, quote, the sunken eye and sallow countenance bespoke the man who dug 16 hours a day which meant he hovered over his books and learned. Uh -huh. In 1869, in the famous American book, Little Women, which is about to become a new movie, Gentleman Laurie is described as having dug to some purpose, meaning that he'd applied himself to his studies and mastered what he was learning about. So gradually the word dig was being used, but was still undergoing developing. It even gathered an, an informal meaning referring to the premises one was staying in or living in, the digs. Round about 1930s, there appeared to be a crossover in the fact that when an American magazine in 1936 included an article with the word, with, had the words, you dig is a shortcut for you understand. But that too developed further. By 1939, there was a slightly varied sense of appreciate even in the past tense, if you said you dug something or someone, you were usually referring to the music they made. There was, is, is only a theory, that the use of the word dig, meaning to enjoy and admire, may, may, might have crept into general American use from the word degar, which is from the Wolof language of Senegal, believed to have arisen and become widespread among the black people during American slave year. Ah. But there's no proof of that. Indeed, one has to point out, there is no proof at all about exactly what caused the simple word dig to undergo so many changes. The best I can do is to give an impression of what seemed likely. 
those who studied their work properly and did well, did well. They, they were digging their work, they dug their work. Uh, so if someone enjoyed someone else's music or performance, they understood it, they'd listened to it a lot, and they said they dug it, they dig it. And that's the only connection I, I can make. Yeah, a bit like digging into the books or something like yes, that. Yes, yeah. yeah, well, that's, that's the middle one. That's yeah. learning to understand what the books are about. Yeah, I can see the evolutionary path. That kind of makes sense. It's only kind of, I'm sorry to say, but there's, right. there's no other way out. It's as good as we can get. There's no cut and dried answer. No. We all know what it means if you say, I dig Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. Had its heyday in the 60s, probably, didn't it? I don't see a, hear a lot of people saying dig it these days. daddy No, what do they say instead of dig? I don't know. Into. I'm into. Yeah, I'm into that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, teaching an old dog new tricks. I think we kind of know what it means, but somebody's asking about this saying. Well, a listener heard a radio interview with Bill Clinton speaking about the new book he was written, he'd just written, and during the interview, Clinton said, quote, there is an old American saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, I'm an old dog, and this is a new trick. End of quote. Now, the listener wrote, surely this saying is from Britain. Well, yes, the listener is absolutely spot-on correct. It is not a saying originating in America. When I worked in the States, I was always coming across this belief that old English sayings were from America when they weren't. I was once on a TV talk show, and there was mention of Julie Andrews, and I deliberately said, she's as English as apple pie. And this, co this caused an uproar. Oh, that caused revolution. <laughs> And I explained... It's a Boston Tea Party. Surely, they said, do you, should, you mean she's as American as apple pie? I said, no, no, no. Apple pie is praised by Chaucer in the year 1400, 200 years before the first apple ever came to America. So, too, for listener, teaching an old dog new tricks has been a well-known phrase in England for well over 400 years. You'll find it in an old book about management of animals and farming called... A Book of Husbandry, written in 1534, where John Fitzherbert wrote of teaching a dog to bark when you want him to run, when you want him to stop, when you want him to stop, etc. And the 1534, the year, the 1534 words say, quote, the dog must learn it when he is a whelp, or else it will not be, for it is hard to make an old dog find a scent. Right. As in S-C-E-N-T. Now, the, the sense of the saying is found through several hundred years in England. There's a book of Proverbs, 1721, says simply, an old dog will learn no tricks. So I think we can be assured that it was around a long time in England before Mr. Clinton heard it in America. Yeah, yeah. All right, we'll take a break, and when we return, we'll have a look at judges, why they're referred to as the bench, and how did yak come to mean a chat? Ooh. Yeah, that sounds interesting. And you can ask your questions of Max. Try Facebook, the email form on the webpage, or P.O. Box 8880, Simon Street, Auckland. Good evening. The Weekend Variety Wireless. I hope you're all digging, Max, out there. <laughs> digging? Am I being dug? You're being dug, Max. Studied and understood. I really <laughs> dig the pieces that we do. It's always <laughs> enlightening. And there are always unexpected things. Uh, here is a question from a listener. Why are judges referred to as the bench? Well, I'll tell you the word. It's an example of, listen for this, metonym. Metonym means a single word associated with a larger body of activity. 
And that word comes to signify the entire reaches of the activity to which the word is connected. For instance, you will sometimes hear the word Washington used to signify the whole American governmental system. And sometimes too here, such as the decision was made in Wellington, mm. meaning the whole intricacy of government. Hollywood can mean the entire movie industry. Kremlin can mean Russian government. And the bench is one way of referring to the entire judicial profession. When it's used specifically, the bench is the given name for the location in a courtroom where the judge sits presiding. It's usually elevated so that they could view the entire courtroom. But as a metonym, that bench, it's used to describe members of the judiciary collectively or the judges of one particular court. Uh, the term is also used on an occasion when all the judges of a certain court sit together to decide a case, and then they're referred to as the full bench. Note, it is not just the judicial profession that does this. Um, they're referred to as the bench for the legal system in general, but lawyers and barristers can be called the bar. Oh, yeah. Sometimes you'll hear bench and bar, and that means all judges and all lawyers collectively. Right, admitted to the bar. Yes. Yeah. We'll look at that one day, if you like, why, yeah, yeah. why it's called the bar. Yeah, that'd be good. There is a reason for that. Oh, there's another of those metonyms, whatever you call them. Yeah, I call them metonyms. Metonyms. <laughs> the crown. And that's just a piece of jewellery, really, and yet we know what it means. It's the exactly, entire... Exactly, Yes, yeah, you're quite right. Yeah, the crown. To the head of state of New Zealand. Yeah, the whole system, yeah. from, from you and me, way up to the diamonds and jewels. And yeah, to the queen. Yes. And not only that, the little thing that sits, sits on her head yes. occasionally. Once. I saw her... Doesn't she, she just... She, does, she breaks into the Saturday night after a couple of Merlots, doesn't she, and she stick it never, on? She has never, ever done interviews. She will not flat-stick do interviews, but she recently decided to agree to a discussion with a bloke about the Crown Jewels, and, and he was allowed to put in um, possible suggestions. And she did it. She sat there, and she actually... Suggestions put, about what? About the Crown Jewels. Oh, about, you know, comments that he would like her to make. They were not questions. She oh, won't ask right, questions. Right. But you put it on point, on your birthday. No, she's never put it on until after the coronation. That's what she told you. Well, that's what she told us. Yeah. But she's the Queen, Graham. She's not Graham Hill. She tells the truth all the time. Oh, well, she does. <laughs> oh. Well, she sounded very convincing, but she did put it on. But she said it was, it was so heavy that when she had to read the Declaration of Faith, she had to lift it up high because right. you can't bend your head down to read the words. Right, right. Although, you know, at a party or something at Buckingham Palace, she'd be tempted to go and get the scepter. But you'd hate to break it, wouldn't you? I you mean, said oh, she no. means she would, the orb. which is called speculative. Yeah. But, <laughs> but the thing fun. is, you don't know, Graham. We have to believe what she said. Yes. I'd just like to have myself a little imagine from time to time. Well, Max. she's got no reputation for being a liar or anything but. Mm. All right. Here's a fun one. Yak. How did it come to mean a chat? This was this was lovely. The listener was was listening to to you, and he heard you interviewing the butterfly man at the museum. And the man said something like, "Hi, Graham. Nice to see you again. Always good to have a yak." Mm. And the listener quite he's right, Tibetan. Quite rightly, the listener said, "Where did the term yak come from for having a chat?" Well, it came from America. Um, the origin is is difficult to pin down. Language scholars simply describe it as having arisen approximately 1945, and they say it's quote 
imitative of many people talking at once. Right. And, the, yuck, 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 yuck. and the individual words thus being difficult to pick up. So the imitation of the sound can be imagined to the sound like yakety, 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 yak. End of quote. Now, but the expression really hit the big time in 1958. Now, you'll know this, Graham. A singing group called The Coasters put out a record called Yakety Yak. You ain't gonna rock and roll no more. Huge success. And it made the expression very widely known. But the song which made the term famous was used, it used the term in a rather mean and critical way. Mm. Here are some of the words. Just finish cleaning up your room. Let's see the dust fly with that broom. That's Just cool. finish cleaning up your room. Let's see that dust fly with that broom. Get all that garbage outside. Or you don't go out Friday night. Don't go back. You just put on your coat and hat. Yakety yak, don't talk back. Right. Well, it hardly sounds very friendly, but over the last 60 years, the expression remained. And it occasionally did mean noisy people all talking together, but it also moved sideways and came very close to include a word we discussed a couple of weeks ago, the word natter. Ah. A friendly chat. Yeah. So a yak can be like that and still is, as witnessed by the man in the museum. Who, who was saying he was pleased to see Graham so they could have a yak. Mm. And he meant a short, friendly conversation. Mm. So although yakety yak arose in 1950 as derogatory for many people talking loudly together, and it still does mean that, but in another circumstance, a couple of people who are acquainted can settle down to having a pleasant yak. Lovely. I wonder what the Tibetans call it. I don't know what that would be in Tibetan language, surely. <laughs> okay. Uh, why is someone in disgrace called in the dog house? Do you have a theory on that? Do you have an impression? Yeah, because dog houses, kennels, if you mm. like, or places where dogs are kept, generally aren't quite as flash as the parlour. Well, you put your finger, unwittingly, you put your finger on the key issue about the whole thing because it is quite, it was quite an interesting matter. For a very long time, the expression was traced back 114 years to 1904, which was when James Barry's play Peter Pan was first seen. Now, if you've seen the play, you remember that the family named Darling had a huge dog called Nana, and she looked after the children. Mr. Darling was not particularly kind to Nana, and when Peter Pan came to the house and persuaded the children to fly to Never Never Land, Mr. Darling felt this might, because, be, uh, might have happened because of the way he'd been uncivil to the dog. So, as a punishment for himself, he moved into the dog's kennel and vowed he would sleep there until the children were found. His meals were served there, he had the kennel carried with him inside it to the office where he worked, and then carried home. Did they feed him dog biscuits? Sorry? Did they feed him dog biscuits? Oh, no, Mr. Darling was quite imperious in his own way. I don't oh. think he ate what Nana ate. All right. So, over time, it became believed that the expression in the doghouse had arisen from Peter Pan when Mr. Darling was lodged in there because he was in disgrace. Hence, the widely understood image of someone in disgrace being in the doghouse. But, 
But in recent years, in very recent years, American writer Paul Need Nancurry queried that origin, quite rightly commenting that in Britain the word kennel is the norm, and that is the only word used in Peter Pan. Kennel, kennel, kennel. Mr. Darling was spoken of going to live in a kennel, never a doghouse, whereas Americans, as a norm, say doghouse. And indeed, research turned up American cartoonist Winslow Mackay using the phrase in the doghouse in 1904 before Peter Pan had settled into Britain. The American Heritage Dictionary of Idioms investigated. They backed up Paul and Ann Caro, And in the American Heritage Dictionary, you will see that the expression in the doghouse was in use in America as early as 1900. So it is actually an old American expression, mm. unlike teach at old dog new tricks, which isn't. <laughs> Mr. Clinton got that one wrong. But in the doghouse is definitely from America. Now today is July the 7th and in the early 1900s there were organisations, several organisations, based on the name and the concept of Labour with a capital L, such as the Federation of Labour and the Miners' Federation. By 1914, there were six members of Parliament who identified as Labour, but coming from these various divisions in what was referred to as the Labour Movement, capital M. No strong connections, each with the others. But gradually, the idea of consolidation was being embraced, led by two charismatic figures, Harry Holland, who had been in prison for sedition, and Peter Fraser, who had also been in prison for sedition, but... They were men to take notice of, and 102 years ago today, what we know as the Labour Party was formed on July the 7th, 1916. Oh, really? Yes. 1916, then they got in power in 1935, wasn't it? Something along those lines. Michael Joseph Savage, who interestingly uh, came from Gippsland in Victoria and knew the Kelly gang. Is that so? Yeah. Is that spelt with a Y, Gippsland? Gippsland, no, G-I-P-P-S, after one of the early Australian... I forget what he did. Fitter and Turner or something, anyway. Yeah, Gipps. (laughs) Uh, It's wonderful to work with a man who has an imagination. Forget research, just make up something on the spot. Exactly, if it sounds good, (laughs) do it. All right. (laughs) Um, And the most digged, the diggy of all digging songs in the height of digdom, would have been the Beatles and John Lennon's Dig It. Oh, is that so? He did a song called Dig It. It's the Beatles, but it's... That it's, would have been some years later, surely. Oh, they didn't invent this thing, no, but they certainly embraced the word dig, and John Lennon really digged whatever it is. Meaning appreciate He's, and love and enjoy. Yeah, just go out there and dig it, baby. Dig what? Stuff. Life. Yeah. Oh, all right. Yes, we'll dig. Dig it. Yeah, well, I'm inclined to agree with John Lennon. Yeah. Often do. Good for him. All right. Ringo Starr's birthday on the 9th. These are things I've never forgotten. I saw Ringo Starr. I saw the Beatles perform, and Ringo was um, sitting in his drum kit behind the other three, and he had been described in the press as having a gloomy sort of personality because he was rather hunched over the gear. Oh, yeah. But then there came a point in the concert where there was a drum solo, and... Lingo suddenly sprang to life, sitting down, mm. but just sort of launched up in his body and his face and his hands and everything, and he had magic. Fabulous drummer. Thank you very much, Max. Like a rolling stone. Like the FBI. And the CIA. 
And let me say to Graham Hill, thanks for spotting all those drum fills. Thank you. Aw, wasn't that nice of Ringo? That really was Ringo Starr. It was actually talking to Grant Smithies at the time, our music reviewer, or assistant music reviewer, because uh, Grant and myself did a salute to Ringo Starr about why exactly he's just such a fabulous drummer. And it goes counter to a lot of the thought, you know, especially at the time. I think it's well appreciated now, but at the time people thought, oh, you're the luckiest person in the Beatles, uh, the luckiest person on the planet. Um... Was it John? I think John Lennon was asked at one stage. This is a joke, but, you know, John's like this. Um, is Ringo the best drummer in the world? And John said, he's not even the best drummer in the Beatles. <laughs> Paul McCartney's quite a good drummer. Actually, he played um, drums on back in the USSR. So there you go. Alrighty, uh, speaking of such musical things, uh, up there with the Beatles is a cat called Beethoven. Beethoven Symphony Number no. 7 is just one of the most amazing things. I love it. Uh, it just plays like a rock song that's 40 minutes long. The Auckland Philharmonia are having a lash at this on Thursday night, so I thought I'd grab Mr Oboe. He's coming in tomorrow evening to talk about Beethoven 7th, what's special about it, and a little bit about Beethoven himself because Beethoven was a very, very, very interesting cat. Beethoven was arrested for, um, on suspicion of being a vagrant drunk. He had so many housekeepers, they only lasted about six months each. I don't know what was going on. He was an unconventional um, contrarian in many ways, and I kind of like him like that. Uh, the seventh, not as fa most famous symphony, of course, this one is. Where's everybody going? The symphony has just started. So, we already heard that dum-dum-dum-dum. The rest is just filler. Yeah, of course it is. Um, okay, uh, coming up very shortly, news, sport and weather in the next hour. We go big on the New Zealand International Film Festival. We're not going to rattle on about, oh, this movie, that movie. We're looking at the history of the New Zealand International Film Festival. It's been going 50 years. And because, of course, we're completely mesmerised by a round number, because we have ten fingers on each hand, uh, we'll be talking to Bill Gosson about the 50-year, the controversies around 50 years of the New Zealand International Film Festival, and there have been a few. Movies have, have been attempted to get banned by busybodies with agendas. Uh, Bill Gosson, he's always a fascinating chat. He'll be up in the next hour. Okay, uh, don't forget, if you do want to ask Max a question, use the email form on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. Uh, and while you're there, you can have a look at the weekend's rundown. And while you're there, subscribe to the podcast because you can hear hour by hour without ads or interruption. And you get the whole deal at your leisure. Okay, very good evening, everybody. I hope you're snug and warm or doing what you want to